Hello and welcome to the Endurance Limits podcast. Before we begin the first episode, just a quick introduction to the Endurance Limits project. Endurance Limits are made up of four ordinary guys who are attempting to row the two and a half thousand miles between California and Hawaii in June 2021. They are doing this in order to raise funds to build a hydrotherapy pool for some disabled children in Hertfordshire, England. While they're at it, they're also hoping to break the existing world record for the crossing, which currently sits at 39 days, 9 hours and 56 minutes, in addition to raising awareness for the issue of ocean plastics and how they are affecting the environment. They're intending to do a series of podcasts which will introduce you to Endurance Limits as a whole, the members of the team, some of the support staff, their sponsors and of course the amazing charity that they are fundraising for. They're also hoping to keep you all up to date on how the project is progressing, the highs and the lows of trying to row an ocean, their fundraising, and also to give you an insight into the thought processes involved. Regardless of how you have come to hear about the endurance limits and the upcoming project, thank you for listening, and please make sure that you visit their website at endurancelimits.net and donate to what is a truly amazing charity. Now, before we begin, there needs to be a special shout out to Essential PLC, who are the main sponsors for this project. Essential are a hugely successful multinational company that have remained resolute in the desire to be socially responsible. They are at the very top of their field as a company, but they are also compassionate, caring and hold a genuine desire to make the world a better place. The whole Endurance Limits team are proud to be associated with them and they are incredibly grateful for their ongoing support. So first up, we have a conversation between Darren Clawson, the founder of Endurance Limits, who is also one of the four men that will actually crew the boat, and Justin Adkin, who is an ocean rowing legend, boat builder, and all-round nice guy. Justin is currently building the boat the team are going to cross the Pacific in, and definitely knows a thing or two about ocean rowing. So they thought that getting to know him and hearing his story would be an excellent place to start. Okay, so here we are in Axminster in Devon, um, speaking with Justin Adkin uh, from Sea Saber, who will be building the Endurance Limits boat. Justin, how you doing? I'm fine, thank you, mate. Excellent. Yeah. Just to paint a picture for people you. listening, um, we're in um, Justin's workshop. is um, a boat shed. It's kind of everything you'd expect a boat shed to be, really. Um, there's sawdust and fiberglass everywhere, and the hull of our boat is sitting to my right hand side as I'm sitting talking. Um, looking amazing to be honest um so justin the idea of this is just to have a general sort of chit chat with you really um give people that are following the endurance limit story a bit of background about yourself about what you've done uh, previously about your boat building and about how you come to be building our boat so my first question for you is just tell us about you tell us about your history tell us about your ocean rowing and about your boat building cool okay mate um well i grew up in a um in a little fishing village in Devon, um, just south from where we are now, actually, um, called Beer. And, um, yeah, just grew up knocking around on the beach, um, going out with the fishermen sometimes in the winter, and um, I used to uh, work on some hire boats there, and um, every winter all those boats needed renovating, and I always used to muck in and help sand them down and varnish them, and then ended up helping fix them and kind of... That's how I got into boat building, really. So that's, that's yeah. where the love of boat building started? Yeah, yeah. And what sort of age was you there? Um, well, to be honest, I kind of earned my first pay packet when I was still at primary school, <laughs> working on the boats. But like officially working, I guess, from 12 or 13, probably. Um, and I had a really, really good summer the year I 
after I finished my GCSEs where like you finish your, your exams and then work right through the summer hiring the boats out all day right through to when I started um, working uh, in the September yeah so and so when you started working who was you working for what was you doing well to start with as much as I was trying to get a boat building apprenticeship there wasn't anything around and um, I, I actually got a job as a um, in, in engineering and tool making and that was a four-year apprenticeship um, and that was really cool you know learning lathe work milling welding and things like that all that's quite good um, from a skills point of view I guess um, but I still had a yearning to build boats and um, while I was doing my apprenticeship when I got to about 17 or 18 I started building myself a little boat with a lot of help and there was a, there was a boat builder in Seaton called Paul Mears who um, he'd come and give me like an evening a week and basically give me a week's work <laughs> in an hour of what he could do and um, it took me about 18 months and I kind of built myself a little boat and finished that roughly at the same time as I was finished my engineering apprenticeship and then just through a friend of a friend, um, I heard that there was a boat builder leaving a, a role in Exmouth. And he basically took me in his car one day to meet the bloke who owned the company. And I took down pictures of this boat I'd made as a bit of a, a CV. And um, yeah, ended up getting a second apprenticeship in boat building down in Exmouth. So that's pretty cool. And what was the name of that company? It was Rousel Morrison. And, um, and really, fortunately, from my point of view, um, they were the... Two, there was um, Spud Rousel, the builder, and Phil Morrison, the designer, um, who had, I mean, they, they were renowned racing dinghy builders, um, essentially, but the first um, ocean rowing race was in 97. They designed and built the prototype for that race. And weirdly enough, one of the boats that was in that race came into beer when I was 17, 18, um, on a training row. And they anchored off out the bay, and I rode out in my little bloody 10-foot plastic tub, gave them a lift ashore. They went up to the pub and had a, had a meal. And when I took them back out to their boat again, they took me out for a row in it. And I'm like, wow, this is bloody brilliant, you know. And so and that, this kind of, the kind of seed was sown back then from an ocean rowing point of view, and I just kind of landed on my feet <laughs> where, I, where I ended up working. So, so I, <laughs> I just want to get to the... You're building ocean rowing boats... And you and your brother are building them, and you just literally sit down one day and say, "Do you know what? We really should have a go at rowing an ocean." Well, we we kind of always chatted about it since that day when I met the two guys um, in beer. That was um, Neil Hitt and Peter Hogden, <coughs> and they were entered in the first race. And I kind of followed the first race, you know. But back then there was, you know, how they get on? Not a rate. They were fifth, I think, out of thirty boats. Also oh, finished and did they, reasonably they, well. They then. Did pretty well. They ended up with like a neck and neck sprint at the end. Like two boats came together, and they were. I think it was almost less than an hour apart from wow. each other, which was amazing over a race of that distance. Um, but, you know, it was only... You'd get clips in the local newspaper and stuff like that. It wasn't anything like it is today, where it's all over the news... I mean, more over the news than it ever was, and the internet obviously follows it really well. And, so the seeds planted, you, through uh, a load of weird coincidences, end up building ocean marine boats... Um, and you and your brother decide, do you know what, we need to have a go at this. Mm. 05, 06, you said? It was, yeah, yeah. Um, just, just previous to that, we'd built what ended up being the, the world's first successful four-man ocean rowing boat. So previous to that, me and my brother were talking about it, and then we built this four-man boat, and at the time we were building it, um, there was a boat called the Pink Lady, um, which was out rowing the North Atlantic as a four-man crew. But they really sadly had a, a bit of a, an accident in a storm as they were approaching the UK, basically. And um, I think the boat broke in half. It was pretty, 
you know, um, dramatic end to their um, end to their row. But they all got rescued, and you know, um, all was well. But the, I was in the middle at the time of building this four-man boat to do the mid-Atlantic route from you know the Canaries to the Caribbean, and um, it was what was you know interesting about it was that the lads that I was building the boat for from Dartmouth had borrowed the trailer from the boat that had broken half <laughs> and I know I can remember the story chatting to the guy who was the skipper of this boat from Dartmouth he said once they'd found out that all the four lads were okay and they were on their way back to be repatriated and all that they said um well instead of turning up with a trailer should we turn up with a skip <laughs> in the end um, obviously um, but no and, and they went on to be really successful and they crossed really swiftly as well they did it in 36 days or something and so now me and my brother are going uh, we've got we've got some we've got to open this up to the wider family here and we've got a couple more cousins and um, yeah we asked them and both of them just said yes without hesitation so it was so you basically became a four-man crew. <laughs> so, so basically, your your experience of ocean rowing before the 0506 race was I'd quite like to do it. Yeah, pretty much. But that's that's essentially your your background to ocean rowing was fuck it, we'll give it a go. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, like like I say, I, I, the seed was sown back on that day where they took me out for a little row around the bay in, in that first boat, and um, yeah, I, I I think you know I know what you're saying. You know, very little experience per se, but. There were boats in our in our rowing race. Yeah, James Cracknell was in our rowing race. You know, I mean, you're not going to get a much more decorated Olympian, Olympian, you know, from a rowing point of view. Two gold medals, etc., and um, oh, Olympic medals, let, let alone world championship. And um, I still think that our kind of um, education on the sea, like learning how to manage a boat in waves, and our grow, growing up, even just the higher boats that kind of experience stood us in far more good stead for that race than actually being able to row brilliantly because okay. like you know the, the, the sort of rowing that the the the, the, the olympic um, and flat water rowers are in it's all very precise and those flat water and you know you're not dealing with waves and wind and well you're dealing with wind obviously but it's you know with an ocean rowing boat sometimes you're, you're just trying to put the oar in the water somehow with the boat rolling all over the place you know and actually you know dealing with the conditions so is, growing is up a more beer and spending time on, on on the sea generally um is, it was a much better education in terms of ocean rowing because of that I, I, yeah i do yeah i do think so because you know we would we would be you know our our surfing for there you go so our surfing for instance at kids was we'd have these little eight nine foot tubs of rowing boats and if the surf was up in the bay, we'd go out in them and try and surf in little rowing boats. And, you know, you'd stack it, you'd nosedive the thing, or you'd broach on a wave and it would roll over on top of you and you had to come in, bail it out, and you'd go out and have another go. And, you know, knowing what to do when a wave's breaking behind you or knowing roughly what you should be thinking about doing <laughs> or knowing what not to do as well is, is yeah, is advantageous yeah. for sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you, your brother, your two cousins... Very little history of any sort of um, ocean rowing. Decided to row in the 0506 race and mm -hmm. um, the Atlantic. You're in the same race as Cracknell. Mm -hmm. He's in a four-man team as well? No, he was in a pair. In a pair. He was with Ben Fogel in a pair. Yeah. Oh, of course he was, yeah, Fogel. Um, everyone listening to this is going to want to know. They're really famous. What are they like? They're cool. Really cool. They're very different people. 
like um, James is really focused, driven, um, looking into all the details and trying to make it, you know, gain every little bit he can for boat speed and things like that. And, and Ben Vogel is very um, more romantic, the right word. I mean, he's more... Um, Sorry, just, re relaxed. Just, just to clarify this for everyone listening, you and Ben Vogel are quite romantic, is that? <laughs> Yes, indeed, we've had our moments. <laughs> if you read their book, you will uh, yeah, read about a moment that <laughs> we had in La Gomera, which was uh, yeah, somewhat alcohol-related, but we'll leave it there. <laughs> I love it, brilliant. Um, but no, but no he was, and he was really cool, and I, th I think their team worked well off the back that, you know, James is used to, if he's fit and strong and the boat's good, then they'll win the race. Whereas Ben was far more... Um, appreciative of the fact that sometimes the wind's blowing in the wrong direction and you're going to go backwards you know and I, I think that he would probably be good when the going got tough and James would be good when the going's good and keeping everything driven on and keeping it moving you know I mean they won the pairs you know so what can you say you can't argue with that can you yeah yeah and how did you get on uh, we, we we did well because we were a four-man crew and yeah we, we we won the fours yeah so, so you you won the Atlantic race just to clarify that. We were first across the line. They they nobbled us on a on a technicality in terms of the the race positions afterwards. So. Oh right. But it was yeah, it's one of those things. We we had, you know, it was, it was a learning curve for us because it was still relatively early in the sort of days of ocean rowing and how things evolve and things. And um, we basically took the much like yourselves, you know, when we we took the view of like right, that's minimalistic with everything. Um, we went minimalistic on the solar panels, and that was a big mistake. <laughs> we ended up having a huge deficit of of charge versus to what we were drawing from our batteries and um it got to about well i mean we we got up to day eight day nine into the row and we realized that our batteries just weren't um recharging and they were slowly dwindling away and then we had a storm and in terms of you know the time that we had to um, think about what to do um it was quite good because it gave us two days of actually right how are we gonna so for people who have not rowed an ocean before and don't really know a lot about it, during the, as as a storm blows in, what's 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 this kind of decision making process and what actually what actually happens? Do you keep rowing during that? Um, well, we we didn't really fully appreciate how strong it was going to be. We, I mean, we kind of from the weather forecast we had, it was like oh, you might get a bit of a headwind and you know just keep keep at it, and we just thought, well, fifteen knots, we should be all right, you know, and. Um, it got probably up to about thirty knots, I reckon, but but we, at the, you know, as as the storm was building, again we still didn't fully appreciate how much it was going to build, so we just carried on rowing into it and rowing into it, and all of a sudden we got to a stage where the waves built up enough that you're rowing up them and you're thinking, shit, are we gonna, you know, <laughs> you get so slow as you're going up the face of the wave, you're thinking, bloody hell, this could. <laughs> And so then we just made the call that, you know, we, we couldn't make half a knot with two blokes rowing our backside off. So we just thought, well, actually, we need to settle down and, and anchor up and hove two here. And um, that obviously involves deploying your um, your sea anchor and, uh, yeah, trying to get the boat settled down, make sure everything's lashed down properly and, um, yeah. And then in the cabins? In the, in the cabins. I mean, to be honest, the, the way that the boats set themselves up, you, you present the, the larger cabin to the conditions, which gives quite a lot of shelter over the deck. So it's only very rarely that you get a 
big one come over the top more often than not the boat rides it and the, the aft cabin gives you quite a lot of shelter so you can actually sit around on the deck during it during the day and then of course you're down below sleeping at night and things but so the sea anchor's out you're sitting there trying to decide what to do about your lack of power mm-hmm. talk us through the thought process around that well <clears throat> um it wasn't I'd, I'd, I don't know if any boats in our race had an auto helm. I don't know if it was anything that we really, really considered back in those days. Maybe one or two did. can't remember. But anyway, we didn't have an auto helm on our boat, and that's quite a big draw on power, so we didn't even have that to consider. Um, but the next big item that would draw power is your watermaker. Um, it was a, a slightly less efficient version of the one... I mean, watermakers, again, have, have come on in the last 15 years incredibly well. Um, the latest one that you've got is brilliant, but um, the one that we had wasn't as efficient as yours. Probably not by two and a half, three times maybe. So for what it was producing to what it was consuming in electric. And um, But one advantage this watermaker did have is that you can disconnect it from its motor pump or the motor side of it which drives the pump and actually stick a handle on it and hand operate it. And that actual, as that is, is what you've got as a reserve watermaker, just that in its yeah. in its manual form. And... Um, what we what we did know though was that if we did make that change, there was no way back. It was if we disconnect this motor and set this up to operate it manually, we're doing this for the rest of the trip. <laughs> and how many days in are you at, at that time? We were we were seven or eight days in, and we, we didn't know how long it, obviously the row was going to take. But in the end, it ended up being thirty nine days, and so it was a whole month of hand pumping the water maker ahead of us potentially, or more maybe. So you're rowing for. In pairs of two, I presume, two hours on, two hours off. Was we it? did an hour on, hour off. 24 okay. hours a day we did, yeah. yeah. So, hour on, hour off. And, and when you're not rowing, you're then pumping the water maker yeah, to make the water. Just for an hour each. So we had to do an hour each extra of water making a day, yeah. Oh. But, but of course, off the back of that, you, you know, we got within range of land. This is this, Sorry, this goes now back to how we were penalised because th- th- there were penalties for if you got broke into your... Um, ballast water which doubles up as emergency drinking water and we got within range of land and we knew with the current pace that we had we could now tuck into this water to save ourselves hand pumping the water maker <laughs> and we couldn't re- yeah, but I've got to admit we couldn't remember what the rules were what penal what, what you know penalties there were so we just thought well sod this <laughs> we're gonna drink this water mate we're not gonna pump this thing for any longer than we have to so you've already been pumping it for probably, what, 20-ish, 25 days? Yeah, uh, yeah, probably 25, 26 days. And, and may, maybe even more, because I think we might have we might have still been making water while we would, you know, we kind of tapered it in, so we'd make water for half the amount of time and drink a little bit of ballast water, and then by the end of it, it was like, sod this, let's just drink the ballast water, you know. <laughs> but so we got to Antigua, and we pretty much emptied our ballast tank of, of drinking water. And then... You know, they scrutinize the boat, and it's like, "Where's your ballast water, boys?" And like, yeah, you know, we had because we, you know you you would normally replace it with salt water to maintain the self-writing side of it and everything like that. So, uh, and you just cuffed it. Yeah, we drank it, and then and then of course you find out that if you drink half your water ballast, you lose one place in the race, and if you drink all of it, you lose two places in the race. <laughs> so you can't for light first and finish third. Yeah, but but what was the funny thing was, of course, it you know. It, it wasn't that close, the race. I mean, when we crossed the finish line, the boat behind us still had about 800 nautical miles to go. It was quite... So it was a long way ahead. Yeah, it was a fair way ahead. And we just thought, well, they, they're not going to... 
move the places around, surely, because, you know, with the distance that there is between us, it's basically like a third of the rowing course. We were ahead of the second place boat, you know. And um, no, they stuck to their guns and that was that. (laughs) Third place. So so in terms of... So you Google it on Wikipedia and it's like, your relative crew finished third. Brilliant. So, you know, that's it. In terms of the race, what what was... I mean, for the people that are listening to this, they're going to want to know... Or gonna want to have a feel of what was what was it like to be out on the water for forty days? What were the highs? What were the lows? How did you feel? Um, I, th- I I thought it was amazing. Um, I'd do it again, given the right opportunity and circumstances. I mean, you know, when I did it, I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have two kids, I wasn't married, <laughs> didn't have a dog. <laughs> you know, got the responsibilities these days, and um, I think I've got to get clear of all of that before perhaps I have another go. But anyway. Um, I loved it. I mean, sunsets and when the heat of the day goes and the stars come out, it that was my favourite time of the day. Um, life's very simple when you're at sea. You're kind of, I mean, from our point of view, we were just living by the hour. So one hour you're rowing, one hour you're doing everything else that you need to do, bit of maintenance on the boat, eating, drinking, resting, sleeping during the night. And it's really simple. You don't think about anything else other than that. It you sounds know. like you were in your element on the water. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did love it, mate. I, I really did. Yeah. So the peace and quiet and just I don't know just how relaxing in terms of the environment and having time and space is that is yeah. that the bit that you love yeah yeah I mean it's it's just yeah I mean you know don't want to get too cliche about it but yeah it's my happy place you know it's like if I'm bobbing around on the water and yeah I'm just it's just really cool I'm, I'm and in terms of obviously you're rowing hour on hour off mm-hmm. 24 hours a day 7 days a week for mm-hmm. 40-ish days mm-hmm how did you cope with only getting probably 50 minutes sleep maximum at any one time? And how long did that take you to go from, you know, normal sleeping pattern going into that before you'd kind of adapted to it? Um, we, we started off actually doing two hours on, two hours off at night and one hour on, one hour off during the day because we just thought that it made sense to not be out in the sun for too long a period. But we found that... Um, you weren't really any more rested having been at sleep for like an hour and 45 as opposed to 45. You still wanted to tell your mate to piss off. <laughs> you know. um, but one, the important thing that we noticed was that this was the speed gradually tail, tailed off the longer you were on the oars. And so in the end, we just thought, well, let's try and do the one hour on, one hour off. And I reckon it was probably a couple of days into the row or two, three days into the row before we made the change. And we found that an hour, hour on hour off at night, you could still get the miles in before you actually started to wear out and <laughs> and need recharging. So, like, what we were doing, we'd be tapping the snacks in. Like, at the end of every shift, we'd have something to eat um, and then drink and then sleep and back on again. Um, and I, I reckon it was, it was probably four or five days before you actually get settled. I'd say maybe more, maybe a week, perhaps. You know, um, it's quite a shock to the system. <laughs> yeah, because it's something you can't really train for either. Because you know, you've all got jobs and you've all got life going on before you get out there. And when you get out there, then you're in that zone and and you're adapting to it as you go, really. So, so I can imagine when you finished, you come over the line, elated. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it's it is one of the best days of your life finishing an ocean row just 
it's so different to anything else, of course, and you've been on your own, you know, with everything in your own hands for all that amount of time. Yeah, it was... But then it's bittersweet, I found, as well, because I can remember, you know, you're approaching... We, we, we went to Antigua. You're approaching land, and all of a sudden, you're not seeing white and blue. You're seeing something green, and it looks really green. Like, and we, we had no real idea of what to expect. And um, I can just remember... You know, you do your rowing shift and, of course, you're facing away from land when you're rowing and you look over your shoulder when you come off and you go, oh, we're a bit closer, you know, oh, we're a bit closer every time. And then all of a sudden you start thinking, this thing that I've been thinking about for the last eight years is, or nine years is all about to be over. <laughs> and what do I do after that? And do you know, that was, that was what I was leading up to. That was the question that I was really interested to hear was when you row in, you have the elation of finishing... And, you know, having spent so much time preparing for it and then, you know, the struggle for such a long period of time for the actual row. And then it's done and it's over. And I'm curious about how you dealt with that and whether there was a big down afterwards. Yeah, I'd say definitely so. I mean, if, if, I've, if I was ever depressed at any point in my life, that would have been it. I mean, I'm pretty simple really you know in the big scheme of things you know I just kind of like making stuff and being on the water that's me you know I'm happy <laughs> obviously loving my family and everything and looking after my kids as well is very important but, <laughs> but, making, but making stuff that, and being that, on the water is nice <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah I mean it's it's just it got to the stage of like what do I think about now what, what, what do I do what do I you know and the, there was no challenge anymore, you know? And it was, it was a really, really weird time for me. Like the, and, until I... Because, you know, the, it worked out that um, I had a few months left of the lease in Exmouth where I was living. And, you know, I'm from beer. You know, I grew up in beer. And we had such a welcome home to our village on the day we got back from, from Antigua. And I just said to Alex, my now wife, um, I've got to move home. This, you know, I miss this. And... And my lease of the workshop was coming up at the end of June. And I got a job, I think I told you before, um, working at a school in Lyme Regis at Talk Boat Building. And to be honest, I thought that, well, this will do me. Work a few months there, find another workshop a bit closer to home, move back to beer, and we'll go from there. So I, I ended the term on the lease in Exmouth. And it's one of those things I was thinking about when I was at sea, you know, I've got to simplify this. I don't, I'm only 26 and I've got blokes working for me and I'm spending all my time organising their work and not really doing it myself. And So I made the decision to downsize, you know, like, I'm, like we are now, you know. I've, I've got a workshop now which is big enough to get a boat in, two at a push, and I can be in here all day on my own making stuff from, you know, and a living from it. But anyway, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I thought I'd, I'd spend a few months working at the school and find another premises and carry on again. And... Um, that was what snapped me out of it. So we finished in January and I spent the whole next six months moping. And of course, I, was, I had still had the workshop in Exmouth and I was looking at various jobs that were coming in, not really that enthused to get on with it and just thinking, what the bloody hell am I? Who am I now? I was, I was planning to be an ocean rowing bloke and now I'm, what? There's nothing. You know, that's, that's how it felt. So you was with Alex before? Yeah. And did it affect your relationship with Alex when you got back? She'd probably say yes, I expect. Yeah, I was probably a right miserable sod, really, uh, between, uh, you know, in, at home together. Yeah, 
I, I would have thought so. It wasn't. It wasn't bad. You know, we weren't we weren't on the verge of breaking up or anything like that. But I was just probably a bit more miserable than I would normally be, just because I was. Something yeah. you spent sort of half your you know half your life planning towards and working towards. Yeah, suddenly yeah. it's done and finished. Yeah. There's a big down afterwards. Yeah, you think '96 was when I first went for a row on that boat that was training for the '97 race, and it was 2006 when I finished our row. And yeah, so it's like ten years that so you you've finish, been, all you've been win, thinking about is it gets taken from you because of the issue with the ballast. Oh, that was after that. That was when, when, when the last boat finished in March sometime, I think. And um, oh, so you don't know that? We didn't know, no, because oh, they, they no. don't they don't release the results until all the boats have finished. What was really funny though was um, we drank all of our ballast, so we had to lose two places. The second boat had drunk half their ballast, so they had to lose a place. And the third boat, which was Cracknell and Fogel winning the pairs, they had to lose a place because they drank half their ballast as well. All right, so work this out. We were the first, so we had to lose two places. The second boat had to lose a place. The third boat had to lose a place, right? So work that out. <laughs> because the, the race organisers, in their wisdom, they worked it out that the fourth boat should win the race. <laughs> but we ended, up, we, ended up three places, we ended up three places ahead of them and it's like, how, what, how does that work? They've just jumped four places. We only had to lose two places. Like, what? <laughs> but I think, I think what they did was they, like the third boat, the third boat had to move one place back behind the fourth boat. Yeah. And now they're thinking, well, the second place boat has got to go back a place, but he's gone. So they jumped him over the, over the fourth boat. <laughs> and then the same so this, fo- this fourth place boat is slowly working its way up the rankings. And <laughs> Whereas really what they should have done is they should have moved it to the gaps. So like this boat goes to that, that gap, this boat goes to that gap. And then really, like if the second place boat had to lose one place and we had to lose two places, we should be joint, shouldn't we? Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So in my mind, Cracknell and Fogel should have gone back a place and, and bunny hopped over the fourth place boat. Then the second place boat goes back to where Cracknell and Fogel were because they've already moved out of the way and then we should go back to what so we would in my mind I'm thinking we should be first and second we should be joint first rather then the fourth place boat would be third and then Cracknell and Fogel would be in my mind that's that makes that sense, makes sense. <laughs> because it doesn't matter in which order you move them then you still get the same result whereas they could have moved us back two to start with and then moved the second place boat back one and then Cracknell and then you'd have had the same result wouldn't you so, so talk to me about how much it, does, does that mean anything to you in no terms we of... didn't care but it meant a lot to our family and friends and that because you know they'd obviously supported us all the way through and they'd seen how the race had panned out and and we we did quite well and all of a sudden, and it came out on our local news, you know, like the way that they, they presented it was a local rowing team from beer have been stripped of their first place in the race <laughs> due to, you know, and, and it was like... been wrong. <laughs> no, no, but no, it wasn't... They made us out like we'd done something really wrong oh, to right. be stripped from first place, you know. And we only heard about this. We never even saw the news articles. So we're like, we're shrugging, going, well, who cares, you know. And all of a sudden, people are going, aren't you cross? There's this bloke called... Um, I forget, it's David George. David George from Spotlight says that you've done... And I'm like, well, I don't really care, but they're like, no, <laughs> you've got to have a word with them. It's just the, so, so the enormity <laughs> of what you'd achieved, the placings was irrelevant to you, you didn't really care. No, not at all. It's just, it was, for you, it was about completing an ocean row and irrespective of the placing in the race and all that kind of stuff, it was just about getting the ocean row done and getting it finished. Mm. And well, having that sense of achievement. Well, much like you, because you, you, you know, you're, you're going out independently and everything like that. If we'd done that, 
no more would have been said about it. Yeah. It was only just because of the, the race rules. They basically assume that if you touch your ballast water, it's been drunk from the very first day that you rode the race. Yeah. And so now you've been rowing the whole race light, with a light boat, yeah. which is advantageous. You know, and that's that's how they they so, police it. So and of course, you know, from their point of view, from a safety point of view as well, they're saying that's your ballast, and I, I totally get that. That's that's cool because they're they're being strict as race organisers to keep it safe. They've got no problem with that whatsoever. You know, so world record? Did you get a world record? Oh, only for the like the, the one of the spurious world records, just because we were the youngest crew. You know, which you know, everybody likes to likes to get something, don't they? But Listen, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. If there's a world record involved, we don't care. You know. But you know, but crew we... with the longest hair, oldest, youngest, whatever. <laughs> no one really cares as long as you can say you've got one. Yeah, no, I've got a certificate at home for the for the youngest four man crew, and then Martin, who, who was our youngest crew member, he was 19 at the time. Um, or he actually he turned 20 the day before we finished he had the record for the youngest ever sing you know ocean rower but that's that's been it's all been beaten since you know so we're we're no longer record holders okay so you finish <laughs> your row, you get back you have a period where you're just trying to sort of come to terms with that being over um you set up um sea saver yeah that was a few oh yeah so <laughs> going back to working at the school i thought yeah that'll do for a few months i ended up waiting there for seven years working at the school but still doing you know because our our old boat used to come back for a refit in between and the school were really good at letting me just keeping my hand in and you know doing a bit of refit work and things but I didn't do any ocean rowing boat building between 2005 and 2013 yeah 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 2013 obviously you've got sea saver and you're up and running what did you build in 2013 I built um, two boats for a no-man race, uh, for the Mediterranean Row, which is a no-man um, charity for uh, raise money for HPV um, vaccination, which they've been really successful at. I mean, it's, I think they're now um, vaccinating. It was girls originally, and now I think it's both girls and boys, which is phenomenal, you know. I think it causes something like 5% of all cancers. Yeah. And you can vaccinate against it. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it sounds crazy. Doesn't it? And this this brings us to this is Chris Martin's race. Uh, yeah, well, Chris Martin w- was um, given the remit by the No Man team to organise that race. Right. So he organised it on their behalf, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So people listening to this who don't know who Chris Martin is, explain who Chris Martin is and where he fits into this. Well, he's a um, GB GB rower up to I th- under twenty threes and into the into the um, adults. Um, a flatwater rowing and did really well. He was a very successful rower. And he then entered our rowing race as a solo and and did really well, crossed in 60-something days. I can't remember exactly. Um, and he then went on to row the North Pacific with Mick Dawson in 2009, I think. And they rowed from Japan to um, finish in San Francisco. Spent like six months at sea or something like that. I mean, they saw three seasons at sea. <laughs> I mean, just incredible, like the amount of time and what they went through, and some, some pretty fierce weather as well from the footage I've seen from them. But anyway, he's a you know, he's and he's a sound lad, he's really, really cool. And he always wanted to organize a, a race on the Pacific, which he set up in 2014. And he was in the middle of setting it up at the time that these no man boats were. Um, the you know, they want that they wanted to do in twenty thirteen the year before and um, Chris had approached a couple of people to see if they could build a boat and no one could and I was still working at the school at the time and he phoned me up and he said 
you know, do you think you could do it? And I was like, oh, Christ. Um, so I, I asked the people at the school, could they let me have some... No, sorry. And then I did, still didn't have a premises or anything yet. And through a friend for a friend, I found out about this, where we're sat now. And um, then I thought, Christ. And they wanted them done in four months. I mean, wow. with two boats in four months. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. your, your boat... Yeah, is. It, takes, it, takes, it takes as long as it takes to build the right boat, doesn't it? So. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I managed to get someone to help me, and we gunned it. We borrowed someone's mould. Rossiter's were really good, and they let us borrow their boat mould for the boat, and we, we managed to do it. Yeah, but I was doing four days a week at the school, and then coming here in the evenings, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, <laughs> and it was manic, like properly. I was completely blitzed by the time we ended that. But anyway, so yeah, on, on, from Chris Martin's point of view, it's all through him that I ended up getting back into boat building, really. So Chris so. sets up the No Man Race. Um, he's super successful with the HPV vaccine um, and the work that's done around that in terms of his side of the Ocean Marine side of, of that and the promotion of that. And at the same time, Chris being Chris, that's not enough. He decides to set the Pacific Race up as well. Mm-hmm. So this is 2014? 2014 was the first Pacific Race, yeah. yeah. Um, again, for people that are listening not really familiar can you just give a little bit of uh, background about the difference between what's come to be known as the the atlantic crossing which is you know the one that you did as opposed to the north atlantic crossing mm-hmm. um and the pacific okay yeah so both both races choose what you would call the mid route or the slightly more southern um routes which generally involves heading west with the prevailing or what is normally the prevailing winds the Atlantic race goes between the islands. So it goes between the Canary Islands and the Caribbean Islands, um, usually between La Gomera and Antigua. I mean, sometimes it's finished in Barbados and sometimes it started from Gran Canaria, I think, the first race. But anyway, between those islands. And so you're generally, more often than not, straight out into the trade winds. Yeah. Okay. Now, with the Pacific race... They do a, a relatively similar course. You know, they would start on a on an eastern coast, but they are starting from the mainland, and it's very similar um, to Africa as well in that respect, where you've got a lot of north-south currents, breeze, everything um, up and down the coast of America to pick your way across before you get out into what you would deem the trade winds, um, because you're not offshore already and out in there you've got quite a hard start to the race compared to the Atlantic race. And it's a real baptism of fire. I mean, you're basically, you're picking your way across seas on the beam and breeze on the beam all the way across. You've got to get off the shelf as well. There's quite a steep ridge to um, work your way out off over, which gets quite rough. Um, and yeah, it's a far, far tougher start to a row yeah, <laughs> than what I've, we had. The reason I've asked that question is because obviously we as a team as endurance limits, we, we had to decide which, you know, where we were going to row. Um, and we decided that to, to go for the Pacific because it was harder. That's, that's essentially because the, the start, you don't have any help and you've got to pick your way out. And so that's one of the, the kind of the stuff that we've done in the past. We've always tried to pick the hardest options available. Um, I know that the Atlantic is much, much sort of uh, more well known to the general public, um, mm-hmm. and is a much more established race. Um, but that that was that was certainly in our thinking of when we decided to to go for the Pacific. So Chris sets up the Pacific race. Um, 
and this comes to where we meet. Mm. So um, <laughs> talk us through that. That was pretty um, The night we met, I remember, I, th- I think we turned up there, we'd had something to eat and we met out in the boat park, didn't we? And you had your UK Endurance Limits crew and then there was the American Endurance Limits crew as well, wasn't yeah. there? And we went out and got to know each other over a few jars, didn't we? We did. Yeah, then the American crew went home and we went home past their boat, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> that was wrapped in white plastic. <laughs> and what did you do to their boat? Well, I had some colour colouring pens in my pocket, didn't I? So I, I put a Union Jack flag on it, I think, and yeah. And a few other bits of bobs. Yeah, we'll leave it there, shall we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and just for the record, to this day, you've allowed everyone to think that, that was... the Union Jack and, and, and the other bits and bobs that were scrawled on the side of their boat... It was drawn by you. <laughs> silence for all this time <laughs> yeah so, that was good fun yeah it was it was a good night so, so we met um, obviously at the beginning of the Pacific Race last time um, which is a whole other story for us um, but you were there in in the capacity of uh, effectively uh, I don't know I safety guess. officer general I, kind of yeah I was kind of I was kind of under the radar in terms of the, the official roles there, there was a safety officer there um, that Chris had employed to take care of that side of it but I had an input in it I mean I you know I'd been on the lifeboat crew in Exmouth when I was working down there and um having a bit of experience from building the boats to rowing you know there was quite a good crew of ex-rowers and things there which all chip in but I was just basically the boat fixer guy (laughs) so you know when when boats build a boat and you're the man that can do almost anything on an ocean rowing boat you spent you know well over a decade building refitting, equipping ocean rowing boats and you're there to make sure that all the boats are safe and that there's no glaringly obvious issues of any of them um, and they're helping guys out to sort out any issues that they have got. Yeah. That's yeah. essentially... Yeah. I think probably <coughs> my, my official role there was a scrutineer, you know, like just basically have you got this, that and the other but then while I'm doing that on all the boats I'm then going that could do with you, you know, you, you have discussions with all the crews and you can usually you get a feel for what works and what doesn't and you can also point out things that you think that they might need to be aware of or could we do a quick fix to make sure that isn't going to be a potential problem a bit further down the line so that's kind of what I was there doing and then you also find crews as well I mean there was one, wasn't there one boat in your race that we had to chop a hole in the deck to get the life raft in it there was yeah <laughs> you know I mean it's so, so boats were turning up and, and, and you know as you've, you've been there you know what it's like there's just so many little jobs to do before you leave that you can't fully finish everything and you, you you sometimes just chucking kit on the boat in the cabins and sticking it in the container and then we'll deal with that when it gets to wherever it is that we're going and there were boats turning up with a life raft that they couldn't get in the hole where the life raft was supposed to go yeah. <laughs> so you know you're doing a bit of surgery and cutting holes in decks and things and you know it was a bit more than I'd imagined I was going to have to do <laughs> when I was oh. going out there but you know you're there and you can do it so you, you just do it and it Absolutely. saves them a load of money taking it to a boatyard out there and things like that. So yeah, of course. And, okay. that, that, and that's all on Chris. I mean, he, he that was what he got me there basically to do is just make sure everyone started the race and yeah, you know. But I was kind of under you know under the radar, no real official role in that respect. <laughs> Fair enough. So that's how we meet. Um, obviously, fast forward four and a half years, whatever it is. Um, you pick up the phone to me mm. and we have a conversation and I'll tell you that the Endurance Limits team are going to row the Pacific. Um, I'll tell you a bit about the charity that we're doing it for and we have 
a discussion about you building us a boat. Um, the boat itself, talk to us about the boat you're building for us. Explain to the people listening to this um, what you're building, how you're building it, how it's different to ocean rowing boats that you've built in the past or that you know have been built in the past. Just just give us the best kind of overview you can of, hmm. of the FASAF one. Okay, well, our, the, the boat that we rode in as a four-man crew was basically a converted pairs boat. Okay, and um, it was quite small. It was, tw- it was 24 foot long and compact. I mean, you'd say that would be a kind word. I mean, cramped would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, we were young and we could, we could put up with that kind of discomfort, I guess. Um, and off the back of that, I've always had it in my mind that I just think keeping it small and compact, that's a good way to be, you know, because when the chips are down, you know, you, can, you haven't got such a big boat to pull into the, you know, bad conditions and all this, that and the other. And, um, you know, it worked well for us. Um, but that's not to say it's the best way to make anything. It's just, you know, lots of ocean rowers will finish their row and they'll say, you've got to do it this way. It's, it's the only way to do it. And it's just because that's what's worked for them. And, I mean, yeah, I, I've come across a load of people and, and then you, see, you say, well, what about this? What about this? And because, you, you know, I've been around it for 20 years now, I guess, um, you get a lot of different crews come back with all these ideas and you've got to be careful with what you take from them because they're all saying... Yeah, yeah, this worked. This, you know, this. but they've made the best with what they've got, just like we did, you know. And you come back with your own ideas of what you think makes a good ocean rowing boat. But of course, I, I like to think I've picked up a little bit off all. Every individual crew usually comes up with something different that you haven't thought of, and I'm definitely not too proud to go. Well, that's a stupid idea. I like some more often than not. You're like, where the bloody hell didn't I think of that? You know, like something really simple or something. Instead of it being there, they've moved it six inches over there and all of a sudden the ergonomics of everything just changes and, you know. But with your guys anyway, um, you've obviously had experience of the 2016 race, which unfortunately was unsuccessful. And you've got to feel for what you like, what you don't like. Um, You like the fact you had more space on deck. I mean, with our boat, there was no way you could sit unless you were rowing. You know, and your oar handles on the backstroke of the aft rower were basically up against the cabin face when you were on the oars. You know, there was no space. And you guys, um, well, there were two two reasons, wasn't there? Our boats always struggle for space for longer duration rows. And, of course, like you say, there was no space. So um, we had to incorporate a, um, a sun deck on your boat, didn't we, for... Uh, <laughs> For the rowers that were off, uh, <laughs> off shift to sit, sit outside with their cocktails. So for the people that are listening, for our Sunday, that's going to be our cocktail lounge as well, um, is exactly how many how many feet of space? Uh, it wasn't a lot, no, to be fair. I we're mean, talking it, about... We, we, we kept it to a minimum, so you've probably got an extra three foot, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. So it's not a lot, but there's plenty enough space for two guys to sit side by side up against the off bulkhead facing the rowers. It's very um, sociable, I guess when you're having your meals and your drinks and stuff like that, and if the weather and conditions are right and you're not feeling too knackered that you don't want to sleep, then you can sit out and have a yarn, can't you? And Absolutely. it's, you know, and, and also as well, off the, off the back of that, the boat's potential top speed is, is higher. You know, you've got a longer boat. When you're falling down a wave and you're surfing, it will, it's got the potential to go faster as well. And in terms of the shape of the hull, because the whole shape of this boat is different to 
the boats that you built before. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unique in that respect. I mean, I know off. I mean, you you felt that the boat you were in last time was quite nippy. It was quite quick, wasn't it? Yeah. And so that the whole <laughs> shape has been um, modified a bit, I guess. I mean, it's 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 naturally evolved into something similar to it anyway, just by stretching it. Yeah. You know, so the underwater profile is kind of flowed into something similar to what you had before anyway um the, the actual setup of it is different there's no um what you would call there's no centerboard for instance like you had there's no rudder that's just hanging below the boat like you had you know we've got a fixed fin at the stern the, the boat itself although from a resistance point of view um, should be fairly similar to your previous boat in terms of how it behaves i know because you have a couple couple of issues um with your rudder and things yeah and we had some huge I'm, issues I'm, I'm, hope, was, I'm hoping that we've alleviated that and just in how we set the, the boat up so yeah so in terms of this boat that you're building for us now would you say it's a kind of a perfect mix between a classic and uh, a more modern design is it uh, somewhere in the middle yeah yeah no, I, I would say i would say it's it's certainly got a um a definite um it's, it's got it's, it's got advantages of both both mindsets basically you know you, your boat was really a, um, a, a racing dinghy hull shape almost you know um, very very slippery very quick um, but it re relies on your appendages your your fins basically for directional stability um, whereas this one here it's got a bit of directional stability built into the hull shape itself and with a fixed fin much like the tail fin on an aeroplane at the stern so you've got a very a slippery hull shape but actually it will still behave very similarly to a traditional boat in the fact that if you didn't have a rudder it would still go in a straight line you know and, and all we've got is basically a small trim tab behind that fin for you to to steer against so. and in terms of ocean rowing for a lot of people to listen to this won't really know anything about ocean rowing but there's two very distinct categories in ocean rowing effectively um, and two very distinct thought processes around ocean rowing boats um, the classic ocean rowing boat where they're talk us through and in fact it's probably better for you to talk us through the difference of those two categories um, well I guess the, the the original sort of ocean rowing race boat shape was was pretty much based on almost like a Cornish pilot gig the long keel um, when you looked at the boat from behind it's got what you would call a wine glass shaped transom wine glass shaped back of the boat you know so it basically looks like in profile the shape of a wine glass faring into the stem you know and um, and it was like that for quite a long time um, then someone came along in the entered the 2009 race and basically I had a, in conjunction with Phil Morrison actually um, basically sussed out the fact that it was a downwind race you know the, the, the Atlantic race you know you're in the um, you're in the trade winds and basically turned the traditional well what I don't want to say traditional I mean the, the, cur the current um, design basically turned it on its head um, put the larger working cabin at the bow um, made the hull shape far more slippery you know in terms of more like a racing dinghy and um and so for people that listen to this that don't that don't really understand that the difference that it would make in terms of 
making a hole um, flatter and more slippery and moving the big cabin to the front, the big cabin works effectively as a sail in that setup. Essentially, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got the windage for sailing, you know, from from that point of view, in the right place. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, yeah. And in, in the ocean rowing world, there's 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 kind of really distinct um, opinions about that, isn't there? There tends to be the people that say the classic setup is pure. It's ocean. It's proper ocean rowing. You you hear the term authentic and proper and pure when people talk about the classic design, um, and when they talk about the modern design, you hear some people are critical of it because the big front cabin acts as a sail and pulls you along. And, I mean, I've certainly heard stories, although I haven't experienced it, that, you know, by putting the oars in the water, you can almost slow you down sometimes on the Atlantic race. Yeah. Is that is that true? I, well, I, I've had feedback from someone that had that, that scenario, yeah. I mean, I, I try not to be too, too opinionated about it because I love, you know, I, I love the whole... Innovative thinking of boat design and boat building and stuff like that. So I, I do, I totally see where they're coming from with it. But then I've also got my ocean rowing head on, which says, "What? When you don't row, the boat still does three knots? What's what? You know?" And, and of course, you've got solo rowers, which are rowing half an ocean, essentially. You know, you know, they can go to sleep overnight and wake up thirty miles down the road. And it's, you know, th- there's there's a bit of a nag in my mind that. You know, as an ocean rower, <laughs> having been, you know, because the sort of boats that we rode in, if you stop rowing, they drift sideways. So yeah. it was a pain in the ass. So you stuck the sea anchor out whenever you, if, you, you know, if we decided to stop, on, like for Christmas Day, we stopped for about five hours. You know, we stuck the sea anchor out and tossed around and went swimming and had something to eat and opened our presents and stuff like that. But if we hadn't put the sea anchor out, we would have been rocking and rolling and spilling drinks everywhere and, you know, so. There's, there's and so just just to be clear about the boat that we're going across the Pacific in, mm-hmm. our boat is more the classic design. In terms of how it will behave when you're not rowing, yes, you've got to row it to keep it going in a straight line. Okay. Yeah. Because because your working cabin, where all the windage is, and the you know the, the large, the larger cabin is at the stern. As soon as you stop rowing, the wind just tries to blow it around. So it doesn't actually blow it right around the wrong way. But it will blow it around to probably, I don't know, I mean, ours used to blow around to about 45 degrees. And so it would kind of drift along, but not in the quite the right direction yeah. and be rocking and rolling beam onto the waves. So. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm asking these questions just because for people that are listening to this, a lot of people are going to have, you know, no background, no understanding of ocean rowing at all. And it's important for them to get to grips with exactly what it is we're taking on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Well, uh, there, there, there is an argument for your race... That the, the the modern design isn't an advantage. I mean, certainly in the in the mid-Atlantic race, and anyone that follows ocean rowing and things like that, all of those boats are a country mile ahead of the rest. Yeah. Just because you know having that setup is is clearly an advantage. You know, the like, the chances of you having decent breeze behind you are are much higher. Yeah. But in your race, and you you experienced it yourself. You know, I mean, the boats that managed to pick their way out across that quite shitty conditions that you had to start with were the traditional boats yeah weren't they yeah, you know? yeah absolutely although um, to be fair we obviously despite some of the um, the issues that we had at the beginning we were still picking a much better westerly route until we had the issue that broke the rudder that actually finished our race for us 
Um, we were further west than the team that eventually won it that had um, the four-man team. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's kind of 50-50, I guess. But yeah, I just, I just yeah, wanted sure, to make yeah. it clear for the people listening that you know we don't have that windage at the front and it is you know, a more classic design mm. um, in that way. Yeah. Whether but but actually actually you know the the parameters for the actual hull shape are very similar to your yeah. previous boat, yeah. very similar. So you do know now that it is down to yeah the, yeah. the rowing basically. Yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> and that's that's kind of you know that was what we wanted. We wanted <clears throat> we wanted to do it in a, in a very pure way, and you know we want to set the boat up for it to be as fast as it possibly can be. And to give us the best chance of getting across in a really good time, but at the same time to earn it properly, you know. Um, and that was really the thinking about when we gave you our, you know, our parameters for designing this boat um, to you and Phil. That was that was where we came from. Um, we want it to be fast, but we want it to be safe, and we certainly want to make sure that we've sat firmly in the classic category. So I think we're there. Um, Okay, so I mean, in terms of you, so just to tidy up your story, from 2016, I think we'd got to, um, until now, what have you been doing in the meantime? Building, building at most a couple of these a year, sometimes only one a year, um, but keeping my head down and just keeping build, building, basically, yeah. I mean, I've, I've built a motorboat, <laughs> I've built some, some little small um, rowing craft, and maintaining other people's boats yeah i mean I've, I've, always, I've always kept my hand in but i'm not you know you probably know i'm not more of much of a an internet kind of social media kind of guy i try and keep away from all that so um i don't really have a presence as it were in the ocean rowing world and um the other the other company that um, that build the boats when you say uh, you don't have a presence in the ocean rowing world I think it's clear from your story that you actually have a massive presence in, in the ocean rowing world, in the history of it, from you know being involved in the first race to rowing an ocean yourself. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're trying to say is that you don't market yourself in the same way that you know maybe some other people would do in the ocean rowing world. Would that be? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, way of putting it. Well, my, yeah, well, you can say that. I don't know. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, mate. I, I just. You know, you as, just you, love as to build boats. Yeah, I like making stuff, mate. You know, I mean, ocean rowing. I like building ocean rowing boats just because they're complicated things. They've got lots and lots of different systems: plumbing, electrics, solar, the rowing setup, the self-writing. The you're trying to make a basically a lightweight boat to, so people it's not too heavy for people to pull along. There's, you know, from my point of view, an engineering point of view, there's lots to think about when you're building it. So I love that side of it. So on that subject, talk to me about the technology on our boat. Well, your boat's the first boat I've ever put lithium batteries on. And it's it's one of those things that, you know, I, th- I don't know if it's a boat builder thing or what, but you can kind of get set in your ways, especially when some new technology comes on the scene and you're like, when lithium batteries first, or, you know, became main, more mainstream, <coughs> they put them on that blooming A380 and they all caught fire, didn't they? Well, yeah. you know, like, some of them did. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the story. I'm probably exaggerating. But, you know, of course, in my mind, then I'm thinking, oh, those are these, these AGM, you know, lead-acid kind of batteries, they're solid, they're sound, they, they work, you know. And so I kind of just poo-pooed it and I just thought, oh, I'm, not worth, I'm not taking that risk on my boats, you know, because, like, at the end of the day, in my mind, I'm thinking... 
know what works. Their safety's in my hands. I'm going to make sure that <laughs> it's sound and solid and it's going to get them there. And um, I, I didn't keep up to speed with it, I must admit. And um, now you guys have, have come along and you've, you've got, well, you've brought in the people that, that know, you know, I mean, the, the, the kind of the technology that, um, that you've brought to my knowledge um, is it's quite eye-opening for me, to be honest. Um, and how lithium batteries have come on in the last year, you know, the last, God knows how long now, is it 10 years maybe, yeah. maybe more, um, is incredible, you know, and how much safer they are and how the charge controlling's managed and everything like that is incredible. And they, they, their, their potential is, is so much greater than the original batteries, you know, how they perform, how much you get from each battery. And, um, yeah, I'm blown away by even just how much you're saving in weight, <laughs> let alone the, the actual performance point of view. You know, I mean, the, the battery that you've got for the same um, capacity as what I would put on is about a third of the weight, you know, which is incredible, really. Huge. So, you know, you've got more power for less weight. Yeah, and and how, how it's managed and how it's installed, I mean, I... It's it's a far more simpler installation than what I would normally done as well, and yeah, I'm, I'm well impressed. But then you have got things like your water maker now. Your water maker is smaller and lighter and more efficient, and yeah, it's brilliant. You know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for advances provided that they're they've still got the same safety net that I'm used to with regards to reliability and all of that. And you, see, um, you consider yourself pretty much as a um, a cautious man uh, yeah. in terms of yeah. building. Um, Ocean row boats, you, you like a nice safety margin. Yeah, yeah, to, to, to a degree. Reliability, <laughs> I'm, 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 very, I'm very kind of fixated by it almost. Um, there, there have been a couple of boats I've built in the last few years where they're, they're rudder line, they've had problems with their rudder lines and, and it really annoys me, really annoys me when things like that happen and I just think, it shouldn't have happened and you know, you're, you're, now you're coming up with ideas to make it more, more robust and... Um, it's like things like, you know, you see my new epoxy mixing station yeah. over there. It was since the COVID whole thing set up, I've got this in specially for building your boat because I, I didn't want, because I, when I've got big laminating jobs on, I normally have in, you know, external labour, people that I, I rate, people that are, are boat builders would come in and help me do a big laminating job. Well, <coughs> I've, um, I thought, well, really, we should try and do this ourselves now. So my wife Alex has been coming in and mixing up epoxy for me and instead of doing a job in a day we've done it over a couple of days she's mixed up I've done the application of it all but in the corner there because it's quite a physical job mixing up resin and things like that I've bought a, a dough mixer yeah. <laughs> you know and it was an idea given to me by someone called John Turner who I worked with um like last year and um there's a set of kitchen scales and a dough mixer, and there's nothing to do with the fact that my wife's come in to help, all right? But it's the consistency. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Careful, away from that. careful Justin. <laughs> but it's, it's just the consistency that it gives you. And you now, I, I don't need to worry about whether she's got the right mix of epoxy or whether she's put the right amount in or not, because there's a set routine of this much resin, there's your calculator, you do that sum, that tells you how much hardener goes into it, you put it in the pot, you leave it there for three minutes, it's perfectly mixed, and then you hand it over to me. You know, and now I'm I'm so, like, I, I could have my, 
my I wouldn't do this, don't get me wrong, but my eight-year-old son can come in and mix yeah. epoxy for me, you know? <laughs> and, and interestingly, mate, that's one of the things, obviously, from our point of view, um, we're very much, um, everything that we've ever done is very much about the team and about family and about kind of social responsibility and, you know, helping people out and having a family feel to, you know, everything we've ever done, every, every aspect of it. And so, you know, our decision to come to you to build our boat um, started initially with your reputation in the ocean rowing world. You know, if you want the best quality ocean rowing boat you can buy, your name is the one that, that is always first. And so it's, it, it starts there. But the fact that you, you know, that you are effectively a family business, you know, is, is for us something that we love. Um, and, you know, COVID has been um, a disaster full stop for the nation I think for you know for the economy for hundreds and hundreds of small businesses up and down the land and you know by coming to you and giving you our order you know it, we was in a position to be able to help you as a, as a family business effectively during a tough time as well and, and that also you know that's something that sits very nicely with us we like that well mate I've got to say thank you on behalf of me and my wife <laughs> in that respect and I, and I mean that most genuinely because we haven't obviously talked about it but I was out in Finland when you first got in touch with me yeah I was working at Nolte Swan building you know fairly beautiful multi-million pound yachts as part of a crew obviously you know I mean I was just there as part of a, a team on a boat um and I'd taken that job because you know it was just quiet and I could have done a contract out there and of course while I was out there Covid kicked in, travel restrictions. I was stuck in Finland, you know, and I, as, as much as I had work to do at the time, of course. Now Alex is at home, the two children. She's fending for herself, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I better sit tight because I've got work, money's coming in, and got paying bills. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a, you, you but know, then it's, you, you're, it's you... a lovely side effect of of our whole project. I mean, the Covid issue has been, <clears throat> you know, a mess, frankly, to our planning um, and a lovely side effect of what we've done is um, to help support you and Alex and, and your family and stuff and everyone involved in Endurance Limits uh, is really happy about it. You know, it, it actually means quite a lot to us. Um, yes, we've come to you because of your expertise and your history and you know your professionalism around how you build the boats, um, but as side effects go, that's a lovely one for us. So we've got a lot of time for that. Mm. Um, we were talking about the technology on the boat before we got slightly um, yeah, got didn't we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> for people that know nothing about um, sailing and oceans and rowing and stuff, just give a very brief overview, if you will, of um, what's on the boat in terms of technology and, and what it does and how it keeps uh, us safe. Or, or Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's, essentially, it's a really complicated lifeboat. You know, you've got um, you've got a water making system which desalinates seawater into drinking water, um, which is brilliant. I think it produces about something. Is it thirty? No, hang on. I need to remember this. Is it thirty odd liters an hour? It does. It's something ridiculous, isn't it? Of, of how efficient it is. Our previous water maker just <laughs> did five. <laughs> so you know they've, they've they've come on a long a long way. Um, but yeah, so your your water maker and that's. Um, that's probably um, the the bit of kit that you want to know is is robust, reliable, 
going to see you through. If everything else fails on the boat, if you can make water, you can survive and you can you can plug your way across, you know. Um, so there's the water maker. You've also got a really, really decent navigation kit in, in the form of GPS chart plotters. Um, you've got collision avoidance equipment. You've got comms, both radio and satellite. Um, and that's just the kind of nuts and bolts electrics. And then you, you've got all of your other gadgets and gizmos that come with it in terms of, um, I don't know, I think you're going to be doing videos and things like that and trying to <coughs> trying to send that out. And yeah, and it's all got to be run from a battery bank. And so fr from our point of view, we're, we're working out how much of a reserve of battery power you need to drive all of this equipment. And of course, you want an auto helm as well, which is another draw on it. Um, and so we're trying to calculate how much a reserve you need in battery power. And then from that, we need to work out how much solar panelage or solar panel surface area you need to, um, to recoup all that energy that's being used over the 24 hours. But of course, from a sunlight point of view, you've got much less than 24 hours to recover it. So, um, you know, I mean, if you get 12 hours of sunlight, that would be incredible. But we generally work on six or seven. And then that gives you, again, another margin of if you do get decent sunlight all day, then that's bonus. But um, so, um, yeah, we and quite a lot of the overspecking of solar panels on my boats come from the fact that we ran out <laughs> when we had our trouble, and, our and, trouble with and, power. And so the boats that you built previously have got a reputation for being, you know, overspecked in terms of the solar panels. Yeah, yeah. I'm quite pleased that every single boat I've made since our boat has never had electrical problems in terms of running out of power. They've always been And just to be clear, this, this boat you're building for the Endurance Limits team, where is that in comparison to the last boat you built? It's got more of everything. I mean, the, the batteries alone, as we mentioned, um, have given you a, f a far greater reserve. Um, and the, um, the, the solar panelling was upped anyway just because you're taking an auto helm and in my mind, I've always got this nag with auto helms that they're always under spec with regards to how much power they think people think they draw from the system. And so just for the auto helm, there's an extra 100 watt panel for driving the auto helm. And so with, with the, the kind of the, the bat, the, sorry, the solar panel surface area that I would normally put on my boats with that reserve in, you've got an extra 100 watts on top of that just purely for your, your auto helm. So in my mind, I'm confident that that you're going to be keeping on top of it. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, what, actually, no, I did have a problem once with one of my boats, and it was I might have been your race, actually. And I had, I had a report back from them. They were running out of power. And I was like, that can't be right, surely. And I, I spoke to them on the phone, and we're going through all the various you know, scenarios. We're, ta we're, taking, we're taking fuses out of individual solar panels and putting them back in, and there was still no charge going into the batteries. And it was, they were approaching Hawaii. I'm like, what's the, what's the weather like? It's really sunny. Right, well, can you go out on deck then and we'll, we'll go through and have a look at the surface of the solar panels and make sure there's no damage. It's like, hang on a minute, we'll just move our washing. <laughs> <laughs> they were drying their clothes on the cabin roof <laughs> over the top of the solar panels. I'm like, mate, come on, really? <laughs> and, and off the back of that, I mean, the batteries were... I, I can't believe that they recovered. I mean, they were they were like seven volts or something they were showing, which is dead. Pretty yeah, and and I just thought, well, shit. If it, if they recover from this, 
amazing. And by the time they got to land, it was back to full chat and the system was up and running again. And yeah, I was, I was blown away. I, I thought they'd killed the batteries when they told me. Because like, as soon as they said, oh, we're down to six points, I was like, turn it off, turn everything off. Turn it all off, quick. <laughs> right. <laughs> we need to suss this out. <laughs> I love it. Um, oh, that's brilliant. Okay, so obviously you're building a boat for us and you're providing an element of support for us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly for the crew's wives. <laughs> just, just reassure where, where them. Where are we going with this? <laughs> reassure them um, about you know what you what you personally are going to be giving to us as a team whilst we're on on the water uh, in terms of support um, and in terms of us being able to contact you mm-hmm. whilst we're on the water. Well. You know, as as you, you're probably <laughs> well aware now. I mean, every single aspect of this boat I see right through from the keel to screwing on the last fitting. You know, I mean, it's 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 something that I'm confident I know inside out. Yeah. And I've got all the details of all your equipment. I've got all. I I know every single mix of epoxy that went into your boat. You know, I mean, there's it's it's all logged and. Um, if you were to get in touch with me at any point with any question about anything, I'll be able to give you an answer. Right. You know, and we can certainly muddle through any problems that you've got to keep you on your way again. From a safety point of view, from the boat, they've only got stronger and more resilient as time's gone on. Because you know, you you get boats that go through storms and they come back with a bit of damage, and you think, well, we'll, we'll reinforce that area there a bit more now. Um, the story I was telling you earlier on about that boat that had its bulkhead stoved in. Yeah. There's now um, framework that gets put in behind the hatches to beef up the actual cabin face. Whereas before we were thinking, well, you cut a hole in a piece of plywood and put a hatch in it, the hatch must make it stronger, surely. Which it does, until the hatch gets bent in by a wave. Yeah. And now the cabin's bent in with the hatch and the hatch doesn't seal anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So there's, there's lots of things that have evolved over the years which just make the boats, they're safer they're more reliable and from the modifications we've done with the hull shape yours should be slightly faster too but a lot of this is going to be down to the oarsman i would like to point out (laughs) and so on that note you're saying overall would you say this is the best boat you've ever built or that the best direction rowing boat that's ever been built or um, I'd like to say, from my point of view, I always think the current boat that I'm building is the best. I, I wouldn't like to ever think that I was taking a step backwards in terms of of things that I make. You know, you're always striving to improve, you know. So off the back of that, I think I've answered your question. <laughs> and are you aware of um, an ocean rowing boat that's ever been built that's better equipped or safer than this one? Well, they all carry pretty much the same kit, you know. So, I, I you know, I know what you want me to say, but <laughs> but all, all boats are generally, you know, you need to know where you're going. You need to be able to nourish yourselves, and you need to be able to be safe and and contained within this vessel. And they all kind of tick that kind of box. But there are little gadgets which you've got, like this. What you were taking, telling me earlier about how I, you know, remotely monitor. Yeah. I mean that is a 
can I say? Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's this gadget that, that Darren's got, which we're installing on the boat, which can contact me with a, with a message via his Iridium satellite system, which basically is monitoring all their equipment and giving me feedback on it. And if anything should start to show signs that there's a bit of a glitch in something, I'll get a message about it. And, you know, I mean, that is amazing <laughs> that your little boat is capable of doing that now. And, um, you know, I'm hoping I'm not to be, I'm not going to be contacted by it too often. But <laughs> so am I. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> but just to have that as a, as a system on board, I mean, it's just another little notch that's going to give you peace of mind as rowers, knowing that the likes of me and other people that, you know, make your electronics equipment, which is, you know, that side of things is way above my, um, <clears throat> my understanding, you know, the electronics, you know that, that they are being messaged in much the same way as you take your car to a, you know, a, <laughs> a, a dealer and they plug it in and they go, oh, your computer units uh, showing, you know, <laughs> we can do that from home when you're a thousand miles from land, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, that's, that's bloody amazing. It is, it is an amazing piece of kit and um, it's one of the many kind of small uh, things that we've looked at and um, are incorporating into the boat and like yeah I did, you know you said I know what you want what I want you to say um, well I, it, I'm leading you that way and asking you the question but asking for your honest opinion mm. you know um, there's been, that's all we've ever asked for from you <laughs> on anything and actually getting an opinion out of you on some stuff can be you know a real pain um, it's like it's like pulling teeth <laughs> occasionally well, <it's> <laughs> because, more, more because you do the, like to sit on a fence. Uh, the, thing, the thing is, and again, I pro probably go back to um, what I was saying about the feedback you get from rowers. It's like they'll all tell you this is the way to do it, and there are more often than not a whole bunch of ways of doing it. Absolutely, and they'll all work perfectly well. And in my mind, like as a as now as your boat builder, your you know and you as rowers, I want you to be leaving in this boat thinking that your boat is the best as it possibly can be for you. Yeah. And it's set up how you want it. You know, like I say, I wouldn't have a sun lounger on my, my ocean <laughs> rowing boat like you have. That three foot of space is a sun lounger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to lift this down. But, but for, you know, you, you've, you've been at sea, you know what you want. And from a morale point of view for your crew and stuff like that, if that makes a difference and it makes you pull harder on the oars and gets you there faster, fantastic, you know? And so this is why I sit on the fence because, you know, you ask me what I think about that. You want my honest opinion? I wouldn't have that. Yeah. But then I've, I roughed it out as a, as a youngster, you know, I'm not as old as I am now. I'm, I might these days, perhaps I might want a bit more, <laughs> a bit more space than what I was used yeah, to the I mean, first the, time the around. Space but. was quite an amusing conversation because you see, basically we've extended, um, what would have been the length of your ordinary four-man boat by sort of three and a half feet mm -hmm. uh, to create this little area of deck space that we can eat more comfortably in and um, somewhere we can sit where we're not rowing. Um, and a part of that for us was um, around potential performance gain um, with the boat being a little bit longer, um, but also and predominantly for us, it was a, it was a safety issue. You know, the idea of being able to sit outside and having a, a safe space to cook in where we're not got boiling hot water six inches from one of the rowers, you know, to us, 
um, was 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 worth lugging that bit of extra boat across. Um, and so some of it was about safety, some of it was about comfort, and some of it was about speed. Um, I understand that arguably the boat would handle better <clears throat> in rough seas if it was a little bit shorter. But as you said, everything's a trade-off. Um, and for us, that was that was kind of the decision that we made. We will not know whether it was the right one until the funny thing is the end of the road, <laughs> well, or the, potentially the middle of the road. But there's also there's also the thing as well is like even if you were in the same race as another boat that had a boat like the one I rode, for instance, unless you were in exactly the same place at exactly the same time, you're both exper- having totally different experiences of that particular crossing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so you're never going to know. No, true. <laughs> and this is this is what I mean, you know. Is if you're happy that you've got the the best set up boat for what you want, then you'll leave and you'll pull hard on the oars and you'll get there as fast as you you, you could. So final question: um, We obviously will be setting off somewhere around the first of June next year. Um, in fact, I, I said final question. Two final questions. Mm-hmm. Um, just one more question. Just one more question. Uh, just one more point, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> right back to the day we met. Um, do you think we will get across? Well, of course. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, what, provided you don't get beaten up by a shark, what, no, what was it? What was happening the other day? Some. Yeah. Killer whale was attacking. Killer the, whale uh, was attacking the yacht, yacht, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 But you know, as, as I pointed out to you earlier, I mean, there's there's so much safety and redundancy built into these boats these days that they're as safe as they can. You've got you've got you're, you're never going to have a better chance. And the next question getting, of getting across is the current record for the mid Pacific crossing is give or take. It's about 39 days. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we will beat that record? Can I ask you a question first? Yeah. What's the weather going to be like? I'm shrugging my shoulders. <laughs> so I'll shrug back at your, your question then. <laughs> no, it's, it's one of them that, you know, if everything falls into place, you'll get a fast crossing. And this is something, some, you know, w- when we set out on our row, you know, you've got to be really realistic that if the weather is not on your side, you're not going to break a record. But if you're fit and strong and you've got a well-tuned boat, you're going to give yourself the best chance of doing it. And so basically you're in the hands of the weather gods, whichever way you look at it. But you've got a really good chance provided everything falls into place. Yeah. And that, mate, was exactly the answer I expected. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I ask those questions is so that everyone listening fully understands that you know, we are going to do everything we possibly can to try and get across and get across as fast as we can. But we are in the lap of Mother Nature. You know, if we have rough seas and bad weather, irrespective of how fit we are, how strong we are, how mentally tuned in we are, how good our boat is, if we've got bad weather, it's not going to be possible. But if we're given a chance, then then there's there's every possibility. So on that little note, I'm going to leave it. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, as always. And I'm sure we'll get together and have a beer before I go. Mm, I hope so too. Thanks for your time, man. Yeah, cheers, Dad. So there we have it. 
the first episode between Darren Clawson and Justin Adkin talking all things ocean rowing and about their boat that is going to be specifically tailored for their upcoming project. Next up in this podcast series, you can expect to hear individual interviews with the members of their team, their motivation and a bit more about them. If you enjoyed this episode, they'd love to hear your feedback. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review and follow them on their social media channels at Endurance Limits on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We look forward to catching up with you on the next podcast. Until next time, peace.